Welcome back. When we last left off, we'd successfully defined folklore as being traditional, informal, non-commercial culture. And we suggested that folklore as a kind of bunch of stuff isn't so much defined by specific features that it has, but rather through the process through which it's transmitted from one person to another. Now, what we're going to do now is to look a bit more closely at this folklore process, as they say in Canada, uh, and what makes it different from other kinds of culture. In order to do that, though, we have to kind of backtrack a bit and talk about what culture means more generally. What is culture? Let's find out. Lynn McNeil uses the definition that's given by that anthropologist named Ward Goodenough, uh, who says that culture is whatever a person has to know or believe in order to act in a way that is acceptable to its members, the members of the group. This is totally good enough, of course, as a definition. Uh, like McNeil says, it helps us to avoid thinking of culture as just being snooty stuff like symphonies or art galleries. And it emphasizes that culture is always a socially embedded thing. But actually, I'd like to think of culture in maybe a little bit of a different way as being expressive modes of symbolic social practice. To me, this definition kind of highlights two other important features that culture has that we should be aware of. For one, culture is expressive. Anything we do as humans can be cultural, whether it's telling a story or using a particularly colorful metaphor, making a special dish for dinner, wearing special clothes, whatever it is. All of it says something to other people who can understand the code that you're using. Here's an example. What happens when you make a gesture like this with two fingers in the air? If you're at a baseball game, it could mean, hey, I want two hot dogs, right? It can mean victory back in World War II. And it came to mean peace during the peace movement in the 1970s. If you hold it backwards, it can actually mean up yours in some cultures, like in England or in Australia, other Commonwealth countries. If you hold it behind someone's head when you're taking a picture, it can give them rabbit ears, right? And you can, it's a way to make fun of people. Or you can go like this and put it to the two of them next to your own cheeks. Then it's no longer a peace sign, but it's a funny thing that girls often do to look cute when they're taking pictures in Japan. Now, all of this is actually culture because it says something, right? And it says different things to different social groups, and the meaning is not set in stone. This is what it means by uh, something to be symbolic social expression. The meanings of this or this or this are indirectly connected to the item itself, and it's based on a common group understanding of what that message is supposed to be. And this all brings us to a second important feature of culture, that it's patterned. What this means is that cultural practices have to be repeated over and over again. You have to do them over and over again in familiar ways or patterns so that people start to recognize an item as being something cultural, not just a one-off thing. Now, I'm sure you can think of some of these examples of cultural patterns, maybe in your time at UBC, would be great to discuss them in the Zoom sessions. In any case, right now, what I'd like to do is to keep in mind that folklore, as a form of this culture, is always conveying some kind of symbolic message, messages. And these messages are understood by people 
because of patterning and repetition, uh, which makes them seem familiar to them. This is all to say that folklore is both patterned and expressive. It's the job of the folklorist to kind of figure out and explain the patterns that a particular item takes on and what that item means for the people who use it, share it, treasure it. Now, all culture is awesome, even elite culture or pop culture. And I do mean it when I say that. So even if ultimately you aren't totally hooked on folklore as the best of all the time, right, even though you should be, I still hope you can take one idea away from the course, which is that without any of this kind of culture in our lives, we can't be fully social beings. There's always going to be something missing in our lives if we don't have culture. On the other hand, there's something special that makes folklore special. Uh, we can think of folklore as being living culture in the sense that it's being passed on organically, anonymously, from person to person, horizontally, across different communities. It travels kind of on its own over time and across vast geographic regions, across any kind of social boundaries like gender, class, caste, race, etc., etc. If you need an example, just turn to the internet and look at NetSpeak. Like things like LOL, OMG, BTW, AFAIK, ROFLMAO, right? These were all created sometime somewhere in the US, probably no earlier than the 80s. Who invented them? We don't know. But they've traveled all over the world, right? Basically, automatically on their own across many different countries, languages, ethnic groups, ages, classes, genders, et cetera, et cetera, right? Many items of folklore travel all over the world like that, especially through the internet. Other kinds of folklore get much more restricted in terms of who knows them geographically, ethnically, in terms of class or gender. Uh, think about in UBC, for example, the slang name of the Harry Potter room, which is the reading room at Kerner Library. Only UBC students will know about the Harry Potter room, and it's really only been around like maybe 10, 12 years or so, maximum. Speaking of durations, some items of folklore survive for a really, really long time. Uh, there's this song, Ring Around the Rosie, you might know that, which has been around in England since the time of the bubonic plague of the 12th century. Other items are really short-lived, like, for example, the little that little internet meme of guessing the dress if it's blue or if it's a gold dress. I think that lasted maybe for like four hours maximum. Uh, but in that time, that, that meme managed to travel around the world like seven times over. Here's another fun fact about folklore, which is actually maybe its most important feature. As it travels from person to person, folklore changes, either in its form or its meaning or both. These changes happen through a number of factors. Sometimes it's like the whim of the people who are telling it. Sometimes it's because there are new social, religious, or political contexts that the folklore is getting into. Sometimes it's language changes, or technology is changes, or other factors are changing. In fact, this is maybe the most fundamental aspect of what folklorists do, which is to try to figure out why changes are happening as folklore spreads. Let's just keep that in mind. The thing that folklorists are most interested in is to be able to explain how and why folklore changes as it moves from person to person and from group to group. So the key features of folklore is that it travels from person to person and eventually will change as it does so. Now, how does this change happen? To help us think about it, we have to go to Scandinavia to a famous folklorist, Swedish folklorist of the earliest 20th century by the name of Carl von Sydow. 
who mainly worked on troll legends in Sweden and Norway. His brother, by the way, was a famous famous Swedish actor named Max von Sydow, who was in a lot of Bergman films. Now, one thing that Karl von Sydow proposed was that there are actually two different kinds of bearers of folklore within any given group. He called them active bearers and passive bearers. Active bearers are the ones who know the items and who love to perform them like all the damn time. Like you can't stop them from telling stories or singing songs or telling jokes, giving you riddles, et cetera, et cetera. We all know people like that, right? That guy or that girl who's the life of the party, who knows all the jokes, all the songs, who leads everyone in sing-alongs, who knows all the dope slang, who can't stop, who won't stop delivering all this great stuff, right? Then there's the rest of us, the passive bearers who know all of these things, but we can't for the life of us actually produce it on the spot. That's actually probably most of us, I'd say, including me, I have to be honest. We've totally heard that joke before or that story or the song or the proverb. And if I tell it to you, you'll be like, oh, yeah, 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 I know that one. But if you ask me just to like spout it out on my own, there's no way I could tell you the joke. I'm sure you're the same way. I'm the same way. We're what are called passive bearers of folklore. We know folklore, but we can't actively perform it. Active bearers are the ones who do that within any, within any group. Anyway, Carl von Sito made the distinction between active and passive bearers because he wanted to propose two things. One, he, he proposed that an item of folklore will survive over time within a group as long as the community has active bearers who perform, use, or share the item. The second thing is that he said that an item of folklore will travel from one place to another, from one group to another, only when an active bearer from one group meets an active bearer from another group and they get to kind of sharing their folklore. That's why historically, for example, the Silk Road, which connects Europe to Persia, India, Central Asia, China, became a great avenue for cultural exchange and sharing across the pre-modern world. Of course, nowadays, the spread of folklore doesn't have to happen in this way through like physical person-to-person transmission. There's, of course, that big beast lurking around the corner called pop culture. Think about rap, for example, rapping. For a long time, this was restricted to young urban black communities in the U.S. Then, because of the commercial value that hip-hop rap music took on in the 80s, it started getting distributed all over the world by big record companies. So now you have rap in even like the most remote villages of India and Mongolia, right? This doesn't mean that it stopped being a folk tradition uh, or it stopped uh, being spread through its original active bearers. All it means is that pop culture now also spreads this kind of culture to mass audiences. It's a big issue in folklore studies actually about the kind of boundaries and jostling between folklore and pop culture. We'll dig into this uh, in the rest of the course. Let's now turn to how folklore survives and persists as a form of living culture. This happens in two dimensions, over time and across space, and through two corresponding processes that we can call tradition and resonance. Both Both are important. First, uh, folklore persists or survives over time due to a phenomenon we call tradition. Tradition means a lot of different things, of course, but in this context and in this course, I want to be kind of precise about what tradition means. Tradition means repeated 
patterned performances. And this is how an item of folklore survives over time. So think about it. If you're going to go camping, for example, you'll have all kinds of traditions about what foods you want to eat, what kind of jokes you're going to tell, what sort of songs you're going to sing around the campfire. You'll tend to do the same or similar things every time you go camping. And so these become repeated, expected practices uh, and become traditional. They become folk. There's a lot of other examples like this, drinking games at parties, eating yogurt before going on a trip if you're from India, or hiding your thumbs if you see a hearse going by if you're from Japan. Folk beliefs and practices survive because they're repeated and patterned performances. They have a tradition. The other way in which folklore lives, uh, survives, is that it spreads from person to person like a virus. Uh, but how does that happen? Unlike viruses, we want folklore to spread. We do it actively because it's fun. It appeals to us. It's important to us. If it's not, we won't share it, and in time, it'll die out. But if we do like a joke or a song or a rhyme or a tale, we'll treasure it. We'll tell it to others. And if they like it, they'll tell it to still others. And that's how folklore spreads across space. It catches on or resonates with other people. The axiom you can think of is that folklore survives so long as that there's tradition and resonance. Without these factors, an item of folklore will die out. Again, the blue dress, gold dress meme, I think, is the most stunning example of this. There was no real tradition that was attached to it. It resonated with a lot of people, but almost immediately it just died out. Now, if you've gotten this far, you might be wondering, is everything that we share automatically folklore? Well, no, of course not. And we're now in kind of a good position to come up with a litmus test of sorts to see if something could be folklore or not. And this is going to be useful to you as you start hunting for folklore in your home in the coming weeks. So we'll take a little break here, and then when we come back, Let's do one final segment for the day in which we'll ask this basic question. Is this folklore? Folklore. 